Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 7 of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in East Nashville, Tennessee. I'm so glad you've chosen to join me once again as we take some deep dives with a cast of wonderful musicians, producers, and engineers that I've managed to track down and speak to about making music, records, and just doing what they do in their lives in music. Don't forget there's a link to a playlist on Spotify and Apple Music with links to many of the songs we discuss on today's episode. You'll find links to those playlists in the show notes below or at our website. Meanwhile, the show continues to be largely listener-supported. Your help in keeping the show going is always appreciated, and you can do it with a one-time donation or a Patreon subscription, which is a monthly payment of your choice. And when you sign up for Patreon, you get an ad-free version of the show to listen to, as well as getting entered to win a cunning prize pack from our sponsors at the end of the season. Or if you're tight for dough and you still want to help out, you can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or just by spreading the word, sharing the show, following us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, and telling all your pals about it. You can get links to all this stuff at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Meanwhile, a huge thanks to the sponsors this season. Please check them out and let them know I sent you. They are Union Tube and Transistor, Spectra 1964, The Deering Banjo Company, Mule Resophonic Guitars, and The Henhouse Hang. All right, thanks so much to you for tuning in, and let's get down to it. Howdy, music nerds, and welcome back to the show. This is episode number 144, and my guest today is the phenomenal songwriter and a veteran of the L.A. music scene, Mr. Peter Case. Oh, yeah. Thanks for tuning in today, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy this episode and conversation. It's been a nutty week here in Nashville with some major storms moving through and scaring the bejesus out of this East Nashville neighborhood, which survived the latest tornado, which was in 2020. Man, there's nothing like seeing those crazy dark clouds move in quickly and suck the daylight away before the storm hits. It's pretty nutty. We've had three or four days in a row like that here, but we're still standing. Other than that, I'm finishing up some mixing here on a couple cool projects and getting ready to play the Vancouver Folk Fest. I'm doing that with my own band, and then I'm backing up Joe Henry, I'm backing up Joaquin Cooter, and then a really cool multi-artist show that'll feature a bunch of Grateful Dead songs performed by folks like Amethyst Kia, Ruth Moody, Maya DeVitri, and lots more. And I'm sort of running the house band for that. That should be a riot, and I'm looking forward to that one. Maybe see some of you out there. I know there's some Vancouver listeners, so come say howdy. I'd just like to shout out to a new donor this week who was generous enough to help support the show. So my thanks go out to David Monahan. Thanks, man. So on the show this week, we have Peter Case, who I've been aware of for a long time. He's been making records for decades and has some really cool stories under his belt. And he's also a bit of a guitar nerd. So it's fun to get into that with him as well, because 
I'm a guitar nerd as well. Peter has a brand new album out called Dr. Moan, and it's available now at all the places that you get the music from. You know where those places are. So Peter is originally from Buffalo, but moved to the Bay Area as a youngster, and that's where he started getting into the punk scene there with a band he started called The Nerves. The Nerves moved off to L.A. shortly after, and that's where he started to flourish as a performer and songwriter. And uh, after they broke up, he formed the Plimsolls, which were more of a straight-up kind of a roots rock band, I guess more in the rock end of things than the roots end of things, but definitely from that same scene as like the Blasters and X and Los Lobos came out of. They signed to Geffen and made some killer records, which you should check out. Their hit or their signature song or whatever was called A Million Miles Away, and it was pretty big for them. They started touring all over the country. So the Plimsolls kind of broke up as well, and Peter Case started a solo career and worked with some amazing producers like T-Bone Burnett and Mitchell Froome, both guys before they were the uber producers they were they are today. He's worked with tons of killer players on his records too, like David Hidalgo, Greg Lease, Gurf Morlix, Van Dyke Parks, Ry Cooter, Benmont Tench, Mike Campbell. His debut album was nominated for a Grammy Award and led to a string of other cool records, like The Man with the Blue Postmodern Fragmented Neo-Traditionalist Guitar. Yep, that's an album title, and it's a damn cool album. Six Pack of Love is another one. Let Us Now Praise Sleepy John, that's a more recent one. And Full Service No Waiting, that's one of my faves. There's something like 15 solo albums, I think, and the new one, Dr. Moan, is exceptionally cool, too. It features mostly songs written and performed on the piano, which is kind of a departure for him in some ways and not in others, because he's always played keys, apparently, which I didn't really realize, because he's really known as more of a guitar-wielding artist. So he's still out there crossing the country, and you can keep track of all his music, all these releases, and all his tour dates. Go see him play. Go buy some of his music. You can find all that at petercase.com. So let's get down to it. Please enjoy my conversation with Peter Case. I want to get another J45. I've had a couple of them. I gave one away, and I don't know, man. But uh, I would like to get a nice one. You know, but I played one of those, uh, um, you know, those ones they were making around uh, in the 90s were pretty good, you know. They um, they were, and they're making some good ones again now, too. There are was they sort really? Of a, How yeah, much are they? they? I'm not really sure. I haven't looked at the latest sort of pricing. They're not cheap. Gibson's, all that Gibson shit is pretty pricey, but... Uh, they, you know, they're making some of those historic reissues where they're like using, you know, the proper glue and like all that really? stuff. Yeah, and they they look and they sound. You know, I'm really interested in that. Uh, there's a real, you know, I was always a Gibson player. Yeah. You know, I got my first, I got my J45 new for 750 bucks or something like that from Fred Wallachy, and uh, uh, it was a great guitar, but I gave it to my son. And um, Has he still got it. I think so. Yeah, I think he has it hanging on his wall. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I gave him. I also gave him a hummingbird at one point. So neither of those guitars are in my hands anymore. They were great guitars, but there's a difference in feel between Martins and Gibsons. You know. Oh yeah. And there's something about the. Ba- I love my Martin. You know, I've been playing Martin for you know 25 years now after the getting out of the Gibsons, but like. There's a precision to the Martin and a great, great beauty for it. I got a D28, you know, and it's very nice. Mm-hmm. But the bass on it uh, and the, just something about the mix of a, a J45, man, it's really, really That's cool. what I like about it. You know, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. In- instant record sounding. Yeah, me, yeah, usually. yeah. It's kind of a tough sound, you know. It's, I mean, it's, Martins are too. They're a very beautiful sound. But they are. there's really something about the ba- the way, I don't know, just the thunk of it. You know, it's very nice, Martin Gibson. So I'm thinking of doing it. I've got a couple of Gibsons. I got one of those double O uh, 
you know, whatever it is, the small, I got one, a 50 is one of those. And those are very nice. And then I've got um, an L1 that. Oh, I like those. A vintage remake of, a, of an L1. It was nice. It yeah. is nice. Yeah, I played around the house, but I don't take it on the road. How come? Just not a roadworthy. It's just, not, it's just not versatile enough to do all the different things I like to do with it, yeah. with the Martin. So I take the Martin and a Taylor 12 on the road. Oh, you got a 12 on the road too. I've got a Taylor 12. I don't usually so you like which one you got. I got the Leo Kotke model. I'll tell you, man, you know, I was friends with David Lindley a little bit and, you know, late, great guy. He was just like the greatest guy in the world. But I ran, I ran into him outside of McCabe's one day, um, a guitar store in, in um, West Los Angeles, you know, in, in Santa Monica. Yep. I know it. And I'm coming down the street there and uh, he's coming out, you know, and he just goes, I just played the best guitar I've ever played in my life. I go, really? He goes, yeah, I can't decide whether I want to buy it or not. I've got enough money in my pocket to buy it, but I'm supposed <laughs> to go to Las Vegas to be in a um, shooting contest, a pistol contest. <laughs> so I can't decide because I just, I, I got to go to Vegas and I can't like just spend all my money on it, but I really want to. I said, which one is it? He goes, Leo Kaki 12 string. Yeah. And I went, so he didn't buy it. He went to Vegas and shot his pistols. And I went in there and I didn't have any money at all, but I went in there and I bought, this is an amazing guitar, man. The Leo Kaki 12. Oh, so you've got one too. No, I don't. I have a 355. So I got a 355 a really long time ago. It's another McCabe story. I was, I went to McCabe's to see John Hammond Jr. I know John well. Do you really? How, how is he these days? Is he okay? Yeah, he's pretty good. He's, uh, I mean, he's essentially retired, you know, like he's not really going out anymore. You tell him Peter Case sends his love and his uh, best, you know. I, I, I love John Hammond Jr. He was always a great guy to run into on the road. Yeah, he was man. just the greatest guy, but, but, uh, and a great musician. But I went and saw him play one time at McCabe's and he pulled a guitar off the wall. You know, they have a million guitars there. And he pulled this 12 string off the wall and, and played blues on this 12 string and it was a, a maple 12 string and mm -hmm. i just thought that's incredible it was so beautiful what he was playing on it and everything the 12 blues on a 12 string is a really special thing yeah yeah and, uh, i want i had the money i wanted to buy it but uh he bought it instead he, did? <laughs> he just bought it right off the wall and that was it man <laughs> and uh so i talked to taylor and they made me one exactly like that one. Oh wow cool they very end of the 80s and I've still got it. You know, it's been my road guitar. I call it the Canon because it's like this really intense guitar. That's what but, I call. Uh, that's what I call my uh, my the Leo Kaki model. You do? Yeah, I call it the that's Canon. Interesting. Because it's well, it's designed to be a step and a half low, so yeah. it just sounds. You know, you tune it to a C sharp, and it just sounds crazy massive. I tune mine two steps low. Okay. Mine's down to C. Yeah. I wonder why they do C sharp. I wonder if that's better than C. I wonder if that would work for me. Uh, I don't tune it. I tune it into a, yeah, I tune it down to C. That's right. C, a re standard arrangement, but C. And um, Lead Belly went down to B. You know? Did he really? That's what I hear. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, yeah, I guess he did. You can hear it. But uh, the C sharp, that 12 string, but Leo Kaki says, great. So, yeah, I started calling it the Canon. Somebody called it a Canon at one of my gigs. And, uh, <laughs> and it stuck. Name, but... That's funny, man. That's exactly <laughs> what I call mine. I guess it's cool for me because, like, the way that it's designed, like, it's actually designed and set up to be played a step and a half low. It's not just like, I, I don't mm -hmm. just do it. It was actually designed that way. And so it's intonated for that. And the scale is appropriate for that and you know if you play a g chord it's an e chord so that's kind of convenient that's right. for, oh that's interesting yeah that's interesting you know i uh um i've had my my neck reset and everything so it's pretty much set up for playing low yeah do you buy a, a, a stock set 
No, I think what I do is I use a heavy set and then I have a bunch of singles that I augment. I do the exact with. same thing. Yeah, yeah. There yeah. is, uh, you know, um, John Pierce. They have a set designed for the C sharp tuning of the twelve string. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I I started using a seventy gauge bass string because yeah. I also thought that was something Lead Belly did. Now I'm curious. Um, I'm going to look and see what I have on mine. I have it written down right here. I put a 70 on there. It's kind of too heavy, but it's insane. And then you use like a 32 for the high string. Um, that's crazy. Or if you put it, because if you use like a, a, a real thin, like silver string on the, you know, just a regular, you know, not, it, it's too skinny and you can't fret yeah. both of them. You know, it doesn't work, you know. For a while I was just obsessed with getting like a big fat, you know, super fat sound. I'm kind of like sure. less than I'm area now. Yeah. Um, They're not easy to play sometimes, but. That thing, the the Taylor stays in tune really well, which is cool. A lot That's of cool. Things, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I don't really like Taylors usually, but but for whatever reason, no, that, that Kotki 12 just totally They make the best me. 12s, I think. The, I don't know. There's, I guess there's just not as many out there, and the ones that are out there, they don't seem to like put, to me, they don't seem to put as much care into the 12s, and so they end up being a little like the the tuning can be funky or the just the general playability of the, like a, you know, a Gibson or something when you can find it. I find that too. Yeah. It's just a little weird, but the Taylor, yeah, the Taylor seems to be, you know, you need playability with a 12 string or else it's a gong show. As you know, Lindley had a great guitar. It was a good all. And, and, uh, and so I ran into him later. I did a gig with him. You know, I don't know how much later it was. It was a little bit later at that. And he goes, okay, well, you like that cocky? Check out this good all, man. So and the good all was made with Hawaiian wood. And it was just a beautiful, great. Maybe that's maybe the best guitar I've ever played with. <laughs> David <laughs> Lindley's uh, good all was just a great 12 string. Did you have much experience with Lindley, like in the studio or anything over the years? He came and played with me on uh, the blue guitar, Man with the Blue Postmodern. Oh, is he on that guitar. one? Yeah, he came out for that one. He played on Put Down the Gun, and he played on he played on uh, a song called Hidden Love. He played Electric Bazooki on Put Down the Gun, and then I can't – he played uh, – David Hidalgo played fiddle on that, and then uh, – Wow, that's David, a great lineup, man. David played – I guess he played uh, – it's a long time ago, and I haven't listened to it for a while. But he played—I think he just played guitar on it. And yeah. and uh, he was a great guy. You know, I was kind of scared when I was—you know—I was a lot younger than. You know, he comes in, David Lindley, oh God, you know. And then uh, he came in, and he was like really fun to hang around with. And then I ran into him at various places on the road. So uh, I ran into him once in Canada when he was with El Rio X. Yeah. And uh, and then we became sort of friends. And then I played some solo gigs with him, a number of solo gigs. We and. Uh, he was on the road with Wally a lot, who yeah. was his drummer. And I would run into them in very strange places out in the middle of the United States. He did a lot of gigs, a lot of small gigs, man, in crazy places. He did. Yeah. I remember coming out of a hotel like in Omaha or something one time. <laughs> I didn't even know he was around, but he, he he's pulling up in the parking lot. And he's in a pickup truck with a camper shell on the back with Wally, and they've got all their equipment in the back. And they were... Out there doing gigs too, man. Yeah. So it was cool. So I played a number of shows with him. The last time I saw him was uh, before the pandemic. We had a really fun time. We played in a place called Harlow's in Sacramento. And we just hung out all night in the dressing room and it was really fun. So, you know, I mean, he was just a, a, a wonderful guy, really great, great player, very wise. Yeah, guy. he was a big influence on me for sure. And yeah, he was on this podcast that we're doing now in 2019, I guess. And at that point, he was his health was starting to go a little off the rails, and he was really struggling with his with his hearing, and it was really frustrating him. Like he, I think he pretty much packed in 
the thought of playing live at that point because it was just he was in pain if he oh, was you know playing at the at at a stage level. So he just felt like he couldn't do it anymore. I think with COVID, that uh, that sort of was what ended up. Why was he having trouble with his ears, Steve? Was it because of uh, uh, tinnitus? Yeah, it was like extreme tinnitus that that was like painful to him. He had it really bad for a while, and it seems to have. Uh... Yeah, I think it came and went, and then uh, and then eventually it got to the point where it just like stopped going away. I don't know the details, but that's that was what I sort of inferred from what he was saying about it. And I was playing with bands all the time, and we used to be really loud. It was uh... El Rey OX was pretty damn loud. From... Yeah, they were a real thing. Yeah, yeah. Were they kicking around the LA scene like locally when you lived there? Because I know you you sort of went there in the in the seventies, and was that uh, like was Lindley a a guy that was visible around town at that point? Not so much. In, in where I was, you know, I was kind of on the rock and roll scene and uh, mm-hmm. he was with Jackson, I think, then. Right. We had, in, we had a, we kind of crossed paths with the Jackson camp starting around 83. Yeah, it seems like it wouldn't be that far no. away from what, from what your world was, although it was slightly different. And, and Not in the 70s, away, yeah. you were sort of more in the, in the punk rock end of things, I guess. But Yeah, things were real separate for a while. And then there started to be some more interplay. Starting around 83, we became friends with uh, Greg Ladani, who was, well, he was producing the Plimsolls, but he was also producing Jackson. Oh, right. And so, okay. And so he was like mixing our record and then he would take it over to Jackson and he'd come back from these comments from those guys. Really? It was pretty funny. But, uh, <laughs> And we were sort of disdainful at first, but I love all those guys. And then Jackson took me on the road in 86 for my first solo record. Yeah. I went out as the opening act with Jackson. I, I played solo. He had his full band. And we, it was, Lint David wasn't in it at that point. He was okay. doing El Rayo X at that point. Yeah. But Jackson was super great and like very helpful, too. So all that uh, all that guitar talk leads me to, to ask about your new record, which really has pretty much no guitar on it at all. And uh, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about that. One guitar song, yeah. The first song on side two is a guitar song. Yeah, and you know, like most people know you as a as a guy that's, you know, carrying around a couple axes and, and doing your thing that way and going back through the plimsolls and all your early bands and the nerves and stuff. It was always guitar-based. And then this record is pretty much exclusively piano-based, which is super cool. And, that's right. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about you know, if that was like a new thing for you or if you've always been a piano player or if this was like a uh, kind of well, a I've always project. been a piano player, man. When I first yeah. joined bands in, the, in like 1970, I wrote songs on the piano. Uh, in fact, there's one on this record I did called The Midnight Broadcast, which I'm yeah. really proud of. It was this record it was on a very small label, but it's a cool record. And uh, I played piano on that and I played this first song I ever wrote on the piano is, uh, on that record. It's the first song on the album. But I played a whirly back then um, in rock, in full on like six piece, five piece rock and roll groups. Oh, you did. And okay. When I left Buffalo though. I had to leave everything behind and I just took the guitar. And from then I would play piano anytime I got a chance. I mean, I, you know, oh, piano, you know, like I'd be at somebody's house, get him off the piano. He won't get off the piano. <laughs> I, love, I love playing piano and I didn't have one. So somewhere during the plimsolls, you know, I played B3 on the first Plum Souls record, Clavinet. And, uh, oh, you did, eh? Okay. Yeah, I did. And when you hear it on there, that's me. And I'm trying to think the first album of mine that I played piano on. Well, it took me a while to get around. I guess Six Pack of Love, I played some piano. But and so there was a lot of piano on that record. But I just love playing piano. It's such, such a kick, you know? And, and uh, it, 
so you know when it came i i don't know that to me it's like all about songs you know and singing and so like i don't feel like i'm really like it's still a peter case album and it's still exactly what i do but it just peter case the piano album and it's like got uh the same kind of musical influences except it's on the piano a lot of it i love playing piano and i had an opportunity to be around one a lot over the pandemic and so I just started playing the piano every day. Just boom, boom, boom. Uh, okay. the songs, uh, learning songs by other people, you know, just playing piano and fooling around every day, you know, as much as I could. Uh-huh. I played at a church for a while before the pandemic. Okay. And then uh, it was a uh, St. John Coltrane Church. John Coltrane, John Coltrane? Yeah. Oh. Orthodox, African Orthodox Church. Wow. The Church of St. John Coltrane, it was called. And I played there every week for a few years, but that was big because I played with a group, you know, a couple hours every week live with this church was really cool. But then I'm home and I'm just playing stuff and I'm learning and trying to, you know, I play kind of a gut bucket jazz, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't really, I'm not really like, you know, I ain't no, I learned a little classical music as a kid, you know, uh, when I was 14, I was playing Rachmaninoff and I played really? Light Sonata and I played Chopin's Prelude and uh, C minor. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> you know, so but, you had uh, some you had a, you had some shit going on. I got it going on really quick because I just took lessons for a very short time and a guy threw me into the deep end and told me to swim. He'd stand over there with a ruler. <laughs> it was kind of a joke, but he hit me with a ruler. And uh, and uh, I still have the sheet music. He would write like skull and crossbones and all this stuff on it. And so I didn't. But then I left home again. I left home really young. And so uh, I did a, I did one concert with playing piano, playing Rachmaninoff. Um, and then I hitchhiked to New York. You know. So Buffalo is where you were born, and that's where you grew up and started playing music. Yeah. My big sister played piano. That was a big influence. When you were still in Buffalo, were you playing in bands or anything like that? Or was it not really oh, at yeah. that point? Oh, you were? Okay. Oh, no, no. I started playing in bands when I was, I played my first gig when I was about 14, I think. Yeah. And I played, I always played in bands. I had a bands with like really stupid names though, because it was the 60s and I was just a kid. So I had a band. <laughs> we had names like Mustache Sandwich was one of my bands. <laughs> That's a good yeah. 60s. a terrible name, isn't it? Uh, I, like, I like it actually. You know, we printed up cards in shop class. You ever have to do that? Like you, no. you had to do a project for shop. You had to take shop in my school. So we're in the shop class and you could print up calling cards. So I printed up orange, day glow orange mustache sandwich calling cards. <laughs> and they were, it was like an old English mustache sandwich, you know, yeah. weddings, parties, anything. And it, and it had my dad's phone number on it at work. Nice. So that you could call, you know. During the school like, oh, day, they could reach you. I got the strangest call today at work, but it's <laughs> when we told my mother, you know, something about mustache or something. I don't, I don't know. It seemed like a wrong number. So we never got any calls through him. But then, um, so that band played like at the Elks Lodge and the youth center and the fire department. They'd pull out, they had a, you know, those kind of gigs. And then we had a band called Pig Nation. Nice. And Pig Nation um, actually, it was a much, was more together and got a bunch of followers. And this was '69, and okay. then in the '70, and then I got my first review in Pig Nation. Um, it was an angry denunciation by the local newspaper. Really, they, they, uh, weren't, they weren't fans. They weren't fans. So I was playing uh, keyboard in all those bands. Gerf Morlicks grew up in Buffalo too, right? You, did you guys know each other? Yeah, he did. 
Yeah. I was from this neighborhood called Central, and he I can't remember what his neighborhood was called. My football team, we were like, we had Sandlot football. We were, we were the Central Raiders. Yeah. And I was 10 or 11, and we rode our bicycles across town, challenged them to a game on the next Saturday, and then practiced all week. And then we went back the next Saturday, and we played Gurf's team oh, yeah. <laughs> on Saturday. And uh, we had this guy on our team, and his name was Jimmy, but everybody called him Cannonball. And like every play, we just gave the ball to, and he had his like dad's football equipment. It was like one of those leather football helmets with uh, no face mask. Yeah. And, uh, you know, all, you know, it was all, he had the whole football uniform of Bronco Nagurski, you know, uh-huh. kind of look. You know who I'm talking about, what it looked like. And we would just send him up the middle on every play. And Gurf still remembers <laughs> Cannonball. It was horrible to be in a game with Cannonball. I was a lineman. So like Cannonball come running right up your back, you know. And he just stomped me, and then he'd go right over me and then stomp Gurf, you know. And, uh, <laughs> so it's really fun. So you guys go way back then. We go way back. So he's older than me, and, like, I kind of looked up to him. He was like a, a guy in the first band I ever saw playing live in my life was Gurf. Wow. And, playing, and they had, he had a great band even back then, and he was probably about 14 or mm-hmm. 15 or something. And they were killer. And they were my favorite group, and I would go see them play. And I actually, the first time I ever sang in public was with Gurf's band. Um, Gurf let me sing a song. He, Gurf left the stage, and I sang a song with the guitar, bass, and drums that were up there. And then uh, on the break, you know, yeah, we go way back. And so I looked up to him, and he used to call. He was a lot older than me, you know. Like at that time, the age difference was really huge. And yeah. I remember my mom calling upstairs. Like I, I, I was super into blues and all this stuff when I was a kid. And my mom's like, Peter. Gurf's here. And, uh, <laughs> and so Gurf would come in like, Gurf's here. Wow. It's like getting a visit from like, you know, the, the boss or something. So here, he, here comes Gurf and he goes, I hear you have B.B. King live at the Regal. Uh, <laughs> and a special order. I had the only copy in town. He, he really wanted to hear it. So I loaned it to him. So that's how we became friends. Did you ever get it back? I think so, probably. But I, I can't remember. I had... I had BB King live at the Regal and the best of Muddy Waters on chess. Yeah, man. Great. Great records. At this point in the show, I'd like to thank our amazing sponsors for the season. We couldn't do it without their support. And this year, they are Mule Resophonics. Swing wider for inspiration with Mule Resophonic guitars. These are Resophonic guitars built for acoustic guitar players. Not just blues guitars, not just slide guitars. You don't need to play them in open tunings. They're set up with normal acoustic guitar action, and they have some of the best feeling necks in the game. Trust me, they're wicked. These musical tools wake up your ear and influence your playing towards uncharted musical realms. Check out the current lineup of guitars at the Mule Store at muleresophonic.com. Thanks to Deering. Deering banjos make some of the finest instruments out there these days and caters to all levels as well. If you're just getting into the banjo, they offer their incredible Good Time series, which are high-quality instruments at lower prices. Deering banjos are all made in the USA, and their website also features some incredible info on their products and just general banjo information. And now Deering is also making pro pick finger picks and thumb picks, and that's exciting because I've been using those finger picks for years. They make these cool ones with the fingertips missing, and I love those. They're the best. You can get info on the banjos and the finger picks over at DeeringBanjos.com. 
Union Tube and Transistor. Union is known for guitar effects pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that sound amazing both on stage and in the studio. Their fuzz effects and compression pedals are insanely cool. I use the Sonebender Fuzz, the More Pedal, the Lab, and the Swindle Overdrive all the time in sessions and live on stage. You can find out more about them at uniontone.com. And finally, the Henhouse Hang is a three-day immersive recording experience at the Henhouse Studio in East Nashville with me, Steve Dawson. It'll be in September 2023 and then upcoming again in September of 2024. Join us for a musical learning experience like no other. We'll show you the ropes of recording roots in Americana music by bringing you in on a real session with real musicians working on real songs from the ground up. You can get all the info at stevedawson.ca. Just follow the links on the front page to the Hen House Hang. All right, then, let's get back to the show. You mentioned that you were into blues and stuff. Like, were you collecting? Like, did you have um, guys like Mississippi John Hurt and and Reverend Gary Davis and Sleepy John Estes have all sort of cropped up throughout your career in various ways? Like, were you collecting stuff and was it easy to get your get your hands on that kind of music in Buffalo in those days? No, it wasn't. Two things. Like the local record store, there's this woman there and uh, she was like an old lady, you know, and I'd go and hang out in the store when I was like 13 and uh she was an old lady, and I think, she, like, I look back now, she was probably about 32 or something, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and so, so I'd go in there, man, and she was really cool. She had, like, a beehive, kind of, like, big hairdo, and she would be yeah. standing there chain-smoking and looking out across the parking lot and talking about blues and jazz, you know, which was what she was really into. And I got into uh, – I hung out with her a lot, you know, mm-hmm. and – uh she turned me on, you know, so the B.B. King and Muddy Waters and Mississippi. You couldn't find those records very easily back then. And so I wanted to my sister came back from college at one point with a copy of Sing Out. I think it was 1966. The magazine. And so I had a copy of Sing Out that had um, Mississippi John Hurt in it. You know, think about Leighton Hopkins. And like Jack Elliott, I think the Fugs were in there too. Nice. And I learned a song by the Fugs, "Kill for Peace," and I played that with all my teenage garage bands. But uh, but uh, um, Mississippi John Hurt, I had to go down to the local library, and they they had a whole rack of records over there. They had two things for me that were like super useful. It was so exciting, like you're unraveling the mysteries of music as a kid back then. It's it's different now, and I think that you have to do the same thing, but it's like kind of the opposite now. You have like a million things, and you have to work through the yeah. million things to get to the good things. Back then, there was like nothing. Right. You know, like you go to the library rack, it's like Victory at Sea by Percy, you know, Faith, uh, you know, like just yeah. the records, you know, <laughs> then, you, then you come to this one today by Mississippi John Hurt. And I go, I think I want this is the one I want, you know. And so I took that home and, and, and I loved it. Mississippi John Hurt. Before that, I listened to Josh White a little bit. I, oh, I didn't right. understand as much. But I liked him. But then when I got to John Hurt, it's like, wow, this is fantastic. I mean, Josh White's fantastic, too. Another record they had there, was they had a, a history of the blues at one point that was pretty interesting. Who was on that? Also, maybe a little later. They had that book, man. Um, it's like a big book by Lomax, um, Folk Songs of North America okay. by John Lomax, okay. I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like a big, thick tome. I've got it here. I've had it for years and years. And uh, I had that, and I, and you, I would open it up and like get songs out of there, you know. So I learned one song out of there. Um, I learned a song that Lead Belly did out of there. Um, I learned it out of the book first, and 
when I was a cowboy out on the Western Plains. I love that song. I had my garage band, you know, the sandwich. You know, I go over there and I tell those guys, you know, <laughs> we're going to play this. And we're going to play it like Doug Som would play it because it's like cowboy out on the Western Plains, like Texas. So let's play it like a Doug Som. So we, boom, 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 boom. we go into like a Tex-Mex thing and they when I was a cowboy. So everybody thought we were nuts, you know, but that's what we were doing. Love I got that out of that book. Years later, I was with T-Bone down in Texas, and we were talking about it. And I go, yeah, you know, got this book. And all. he goes, yeah. I, oh, yeah, Jeffrey Lee Pierce, this guy from the Gun Club, gave me this thing he called The Book. And it was where it was called The History of Blues by uh, Oliver, uh, Paul Oliver. Okay. And uh, it was The History of the Blues. It was a red book. He gave it to me eventually. I've got it around here somewhere. I think I'm looking at it right now, maybe. And, and uh he would take lyrics out of this out of old blues songs and use it. And he goes, whenever we got stuck, I wrote some songs with him at one point. And we're like, he go, get the book. <laughs> so I was joking, you know, so I was joking with T-Bone about it. And uh, T-Bone goes, well, Bob, you know, Dylan, he has a thing he calls the book. You go, really? He goes, yeah, it's the folk songs of North America by the Lomax. Okay. And I go, and wow, I've been one. reading that since I was 14, you know? Wow. And uh, was, there were two books I would always read at the library, Folk Songs of North America. Like, I would just pour over it. I can't remember if it was or why I didn't take it home. I think it was a reference book. It was really heavy. I would just read it at the library. And, and uh, it's like a little town library, you know? And then they had this huge book called Being in Nothingness by Jean-Paul Sartre. And and it just seems so absurd to me that there was a book that was so fat about being in nothingness. And like the first half of the book was being and the second act was nothingness. And I didn't understand. And I would open it up and laugh because he couldn't understand like one word he was saying in the book. <laughs> but you kept going back to it. <laughs> I would read it for laughs. I would show it to people I was hanging out with. And then, <laughs> but the folk song book, you know, I was really into that. So I was playing folk song gigs and rock and roll band gigs at the same time. So I would go play at the um, fire hall with, with the sandwich uh, or, or, or the pig nation or something. And then I would go play the Unitarian church basement. with uh, Like a coffee house thing. Yeah. do a coffee. House. I told, I was sharing a dressing room once with uh, Dave Van Rock and we were talking about early gigs and I go, yeah, you know, I think I started my folk song thing at the Unitarian church, Unitarian church. He says, <laughs> you know, that I would have starved to death years ago if it wasn't for the Unitarians. <laughs> he goes, you know what happens when you move to a Unitarian neighborhood, don't you? They burn a question mark on your front lawn. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's a really funny guy, but you know, I was raised as a Unitarian. Okay. And um, my parent, in other words, I was raised like uh, with uh, completely befuddled and questioned everything about in the world. And uh, <laughs> but they let me; they gave me the key to the church, and and uh, uh, in this little town because I could go in there and play piano. And so I would oh, play cool. play the church piano, and I wrote that song just hanging on. It's the first song on Midnight Broadcast. I wrote it in a church. So I'm recording Midnight Broadcast, which we recorded at a church in uh, Martha's Vineyard called the. Old Wailing Church, and uh, it's got an incredible echo in it. It's like an old, old. It's like the church in uh, Moby Dick or something. Yeah. It's like Old Wailing Church. It's the real Old Wailing Church. And we recorded the album in their midnight broadcast on a Nagra tape recorder. It's like a two-track. Yeah. You know, the record's cut. It's a combination of two-track and ambient uh, music that we also recorded, used um, Moogs on. Wow. <laughs> and so. Cool. An interesting record, a combination of folk music and like, you know, Brian Eno or something. Yeah. But when we got in there and I played the piano and all of a sudden I go, wow, it sounds exactly like the church where I wrote this song. And I said, I just played that song and they recorded it. We opened the record with it. 
Wow, that's so cool. Midnight broadcast available somewhere, somehow. <laughs> you know, midnight broadcast, I'm really proud of it. It came out during the pandemic, though. It's my first of two records that I got out in the pandemic. And we did it right before the pandemic hit. It's on a little label called Bandaloop, but you can get it. You can probably get it through any of the big places. But, you know, I think it's one of my best records. I like it's, that record. It's cool. Oh, good. Yeah. Because it's supposed to create, it's like the idea, like you're driving late at night on an abandoned highway out in the middle of nowhere in a car and it's dark, pitch dark. You can't see anything. And, oh, God, you got a long way to go. It's nighttime driving. And you turn on the radio and all of a sudden, like through the static, this like incredible song starts up. And then it's like all going in and out of phase. And there's a DJ, DJ playing you like, and music sounds so much different in a situation like that. It kind of goes straight to your heart. And so that was the idea of that album was like, it's the D we even have a DJ on the record, right? Yeah. Yeah. Was that a thing for you? Like when you were doing the new record, was it partly some sort of connection to your early days of like playing the piano in the church and like trying to recreate that sound in your head that was, that was hitting you there? Like, were you sort of going for that? kind of thing at all to can like to reconnect or, or anything like that? Or, you know, there is a, it's a good question because there is a thing when I play piano that I used to have that I would, it would be like, I don't know how to describe it really. It's like, we're getting to the good part, you know, mm -hmm. when I was a little kid, you know, I used to make up, I, my, they'd make me go to bed. When, do you remember, did you ever have to go to bed when the sun was still up? Sure. Like it might, yeah. Like when you're little, right? Like they make you go to bed and it's like still sunny out. I'm from Canada, so it was still sunny till ten o'clock sometimes. Where are you from in Canada? Uh, Vancouver. Okay, so yeah. it's not that much farther north than Buffalo, I don't think. Right? No, not really. So I guess it would be sunny out. Yeah, and I'd be lying there in bed, and so I would start going. Duh. I'd be like rocking back and forth in bed, and going da 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 da. And to me, I was like making up a symphony, you know. And I'd be like. My dad would come in, you know, quiet down in here. You know, go to sleep. Told you, quiet down. Now you, you got to settle down and go to sleep. You know, you're, you know, you, and so I, but then I, I was thinking, I got to do it just one more time because, like, I was just getting to the good part. Mm -hmm. And then finally I'd be like, I had this whole thing going, you got to quiet down, you know, <laughs> you know, but, uh, to me, that was like a lot like playing the piano. It was like, that was when I was really little. And then later on, like I would, I, you know, sometimes when you, I wouldn't really know exactly what I was doing, but you would get to these parts that were like really like, oh, this is the good part, you know? Mm -hmm. And and that I did notice that, you know, I used to always do that as a piano player. It's kind of because maybe because it wasn't my uh, main instrument either. It was exciting to do it like that. And then for a while that went away for me on piano and I just didn't play piano for a long time. I just wasn't having that experience anymore. I, I couldn't really tell you why. And then somehow I started back, I got it back, you know? And so now like, that's kind of what this album is in a way. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, all of a sudden I'm back to like the excitement of like music, you know, that like really turns you on, you know, to make. And so that's what it is. You know, you go with the things that, a lot of the best things you don't know exactly what you know. It's go, it's going beyond really what you uh, know. I heard somebody say one time that art is uh, you know art is always something you don't know how to do. Like it's the thing you don't know how to do that is uh, yeah. I guess really, so. You know what I mean. And so uh, you don't really know how it's going to turn out when you start writing a song. Everybody knows that you start writing the song and like it just could go anywhere and you don't know. And that's the great thing about writing songs is that. You start with nothing, and at the end of yeah. like the songwriting session, you may have like this thing. It's this thing, and you play it for somebody. Oh, the song! And it didn't but it exist. just came out. 
Yeah. Was the process of writing for you different on the piano than it was like you've, you've been sort of a guitar focused artist for so long when you started sitting down again at the piano and like reconnecting with that instrument? Did the did the music come to you writing wise in a different way than it had been before? Or was it just kind of the same thing and it happened to be the instrument that was sitting around? It's always different when I write. It's always the same and it's always different. And so the way it's the same is words don't come first necessarily or music doesn't come first. Sometimes they all come at once. Sometimes they don't come. Sometimes you get the words and you just write the words down and I'll have words and I write words and sometimes I'll just make up music and then I got to set the words to music mm-hmm. or set the mu- set words to the music and it comes all different ways. And I don't have any really one way of doing it. I do it different every record. I've, oh, cool. I've, and so it's a, it's the different, it's different, but then the, it's the same too. One thing I do is, and the thing that's the same about it is I try to get it to this place where I feel like it's, uh, we're there, you know, and it's like, there's this thing that tells me it's like a, that, we're, that it's finished. So when things are still moving around all in flux in it, I don't feel like it's finished. And also I have this thing that I do, you know, when I was a kid, I wrote songs. And so I had this song, like I wrote, write songs. And nobody liked my songs. And then all of a sudden I wrote this one song that just hanging on song I'm talking about. Yeah. And I played that and like older people, like they were like old people, like 23 years old or something like that. They would go, Hey, that case, play that song again. You know, we'd be around a piano case, play your song. You know? uh-huh. And they tried to like that song. And so I went home and I'm like, I got to write another song, man. These people, these that I look up to, they wrote, they really like it. I'm going to, you know, and I make up another song and I, I play it for this guy. I go, Hey man, check out my new song. Oh yeah, sure. I played a song for him. He goes, he goes, Case, you know, that's bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) And so he got kind of jolted me, man, because I, I guess I did know it was bullshit, but I just wanted to see what the market would bear, you know? (laughs) And so (laughs) it wouldn't bear that, you know? It's good good to test the parameters. Yeah, I tested the parameters. And so it gave me, I don't know if it's the best thing because it's kind of hard on myself sometimes, but I have a way of like, when you're a songwriter, you have to you have to get off your back to write stuff. But at some point, you got to go. How would I feel if I just walked into it and I didn't know myself and I just heard this? Right. Is there enough here for people to get into it to be able to like understand where I'm coming from and who and how and what. And you get you know it's a it's like that's a bit that's not really that's painful actually to the other part of you that just like making up stuff and getting to the good part. Yeah. And so. So that's that. Yeah. So the process was the same. It was different. It was exciting though. Uh, it was very different. You know, I don't always write with an instrument. Sometimes it just comes in your head and then you try to get it down on an instrument. Mm-hmm. And then other times like the instruments, the playing that you're doing comes out of a song that you already know it can go all different ways. But the important thing for me would be to, uh, you know, find something that really, you know, got my interest. You know, that's the thing really. I'm looking for that thing. I'm looking for the question that I don't really know the answer to. Uh-huh. And then, you know, I write so I know what I think. There's another thing. It's like I, I write a lot on paper and stuff, you know, because I don't – for some reason I don't – I'm not really that articulate. I, in history I haven't been unless I write too. I have to be able to – I don't really know what I think about things sometimes until I write about them. Uh-huh. It's a weird thing. Yeah, uh, my dad used to, When I was little, my dad used to go, well, you know, this was ridiculous what's going on with this report card or something like that, you know. <laughs> What do you have to say for yourself? And, 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 you know, I never had anything to say for myself with my dad, you know. Um, I want to rock. 
I'm going to drop out of school at 16 and head for California. No, I didn't tell him that. But, you know, uh, I just want to rock, Dad. Get with it, man. Yeah, man. I didn't have anything to say like that. I used to sit there in school, though, and you'd look out the window, man, and uh, see the cars going by. And it's like, oh, God, you know, I got to get out of the school, man. They're killing me over here. There's a whole world. I mean, I'd read Kerouac when I was 14, too. You know, you were ready to go. Got to get out there, man. Yeah. So I did. Yeah. <laughs> when you- Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You made this this record. It seems to be like a to me that it was like a really interesting um, production decision of the overall project that it was going to be really piano forward because the the music you're right like it does sound just like a Peter Case record but it's noticeably like the featured yeah. thing is the piano so was that something that you set out to do like some of the songs they could have gone in a totally different way if they had some guitars on them you know they could be like really straight up kind of roots rockers that kind of thing and there's some really cool yeah. ballads and stuff like that but the way that they're presented with this with the piano and and a lot of them are just like very sparse and like you know pretty much just the piano although there's other instruments in there sometimes uh but how conscious of a decision decision was that to to approach this recording that way at some point it was conscious like <laughs> a little ways in you know i've got like oh this is a you know where this is going to be out of piano record i wanted to focus it i like things that are focused you know so i mean i wanted to you know, instead of just being all, I've made records that are all over the map, like my first solo record or uh, especially that one. But I'm trying to remember if I've done other ones like that, you know, where you have like all different kinds of like band lineups and solo lineups and all kinds of different things. But what I wanted was to have the, yeah, I had this feeling that was going on that did kind of echo what was going on with the shutdown, mm-hmm. created kind of a refocusing of our lives. Yeah. And, uh, and that was definitely part of it. And so like, I felt that it would uh, that it was a good idea that it was a fresh thing to do it was very interesting. So you know, I loved it. You know, to me, it's not that different. Some people are like, "Oh, you know, you should just play to your strengths or whatever." But I kind of feel it is my strength: song writing and singing. And so, like, if I'm yeah. singing with a piano, like, remember Nilsson's uh, Nilsson sings Newman. You know, love that record. I mean, never done that before. That and then we got that record. Like, this is like the greatest record: Randy Newman on piano and Nilsson. That's the whole record. Yeah. It was one of my favorite Nilsson albums. Yeah. You know, it's just incredible. So, so that's kind of the thinking about it. I've always loved when Bob Dylan played piano, you know, on uh, Black Crow Blues or mm-hmm. Spanish is the Love and Tongue, you know, those kind of things. And so 
or Monk's solo records, you know? So, I, I mean, Monk's such a giant, so you can't really compare it, but, but, you know, so I thought it would be different and fresh and like something new to, you know, Peter Case, the piano album. It's not like a, a radical right turn musically. Like I did after I left the plimsolls and made my first solo record a hundred years ago that threw people for a loop, but I don't think this will because it's still, it's still the same kind of songwriting and it carries you along with the voice. And then the piano, you know, the piano is kind of like a drum. There's a great bass player on the record named Johnny flowers and John flowers is like a, um, he's just a great, all around powerful electric and acoustic bass player. And so he like, he's kind of like the drummer in a way. And then the piano is very drum like too at times. So yeah. I'm a rhythm piano player. I can't really do, you know, you know, the jazz yeah. thing, you know, so I'm, I, I, it's all pretty much orchestrated rhythm and grooving rhythm, you know? Yeah. I like music that grooves. It has a feeling like gives you a body feeling, even if it's a slow song, gives you a way to tap your foot or like a way to like, you feel your, you feel the groove, you know, it makes you move your shoulders or whatever, you know, they say, but you know, uh, you know, and I like that a lot. And that's so we're trying to go th between the guitar, the piano and the um, bass. I feel like there's a whole, you know, drum percussive section, you know? Yeah. And so, and so I guess that answers the question. It was pretty, once we got to the production level, yeah, I knew that we were going for that. Okay. And where'd you do it? Like the, the piano is really, really unique sounding. Like it's, is it an upright or is it a, a, a grand or what is it? I looked around the city for a piano and I found one up in Nevada with this guy, Ryan McCaffrey he had a studio up there. It's called Sun Machine. And I'd heard about it from another piano player and I went up and tried it out. He's got a 1905 1905 Steinway Upright. Oh, okay. Completely restore. Wow. And it's in this big, big room, you know, and that's what we did the record on. So, cool. so, uh, okay. Yeah. It just was a, it's, you know, he had it restored. He'd found it somewhere and it was beat up and the, he had it fixed. And, uh, wow. That's he, a, that's a huge undertaking for, for a piano, an old piano like that. Yeah. He put a lot into it and it was yeah. just a great piano and it's still, I mean, it's still a great piano. You can see it, and there's a video of how, Have You Ever Been in Trouble Now up on YouTube. Okay. I'm, I'm do the video. You can see the piano on there. I mean, not that that's but it just looks like an upright piano, but it, it's a great piano. So did you do the whole record at, in one in one time period, or was it sort of picked away at, like, during COVID, or how did you do it? How did you actually track it? We tracked the majority of it all in one time period, yeah. in very early uh, in the early part of the year. What you, you know, I kind of mix up about what year and what happened. I think it was last year. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I think everybody so, uh, is. So we did almost all of it at one point right in there. Okay. And then, um, and then we mixed it. There was a little bit that went down. The first two songs that went down were done actually in 21 at the very end of 21. I went into the studio one day and I did ancient sunrise. And then I did all those guitars on uh, wandering days. Okay. I did the whole the wandering days and then, and then uh, Johnny played bass on it. And we did all that. Those were that was the first day of recording those two songs. Oh, cool! And then you know we had to break over the holiday or something, and then we came back and finished it. Yeah. And so I did like another nine or ten songs, and then we put it we put it together, you know. Okay. But uh, or eight songs or something. You mentioned a few times your your first solo record, which I think was like was it like eighty six or eighty seven or something like that. Eighty six, yeah. Can you tell me a bit about that? So T-Bone produced it, but also wasn't Mitchell Froom involved in that record? Yeah, he was, because T-Bone produced most of the record, and then he had some dates on the road with uh, Elvis Costello. And so the two of them went off to, like, you know, France or something. I don't know what they were doing. And uh, I just saw Elvis last night. You did? Yeah. How's he doing? It's doing good. 
Doing great. Well, he uh, he and T blasted off, so Mitchell finished that record. But I started it with T Bone in '85 down in uh, Fort Worth. Oh, we're, Eagle he's, Audi. He's from there, right? Yeah, he is. And so I lived with him down there. We had an apartment down there. I was living there with him for a while in '85, early '85, January '85. And then we went into Eagle Audio. So we were so sharing the apartment. We had what, the back room, we had the front room, and we were just hanging out in there. And I would write every day when I got up. I don't know what the hell he was doing. Probably, I think he was studying the life of Lyndon Johnson at that point. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> what was his deal at that point? Like he he hadn't become a, the Uber producer yet. Like he hadn't had the huge mm-hmm. pop success that he had. He like just in the, about to. Yeah, just about to. And it, but he'd already done the Dylan stuff. Like who was he to you at that point? He was a guy I thought could help me. And so um, I realized that he was a, um, a singer-songwriter that kind of came with a lot of rock and roll background. And it was, he was about the only one I could think of. Okay. He was producing a few things. He produced – I met him at a Los Lobos set. I met him twice. A Million Miles Away was a big hit in the West Coast. And one time I was at a gig, and T-Bone comes up to me in a crowd of people, and he goes, who produced A Million Miles Away? I go, Jeff Eirich. He goes, Thanks. So the next thing I hear is like, he wants hired Jeff Eirich to produce his new album. <laughs> That's a Plimsolls song, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was weird. And I don't know how that worked out, but, but uh, next time I saw him, I went down, I was with uh, this guy, Kid Ramos and me, we were hanging out. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were learning Light and Hopkins songs and hanging out. And when me and Kid went down to see Los Lobos at Sunset Studios. I forget what it's called. Not Sunset Sound, but the other one. Sound Factory. We went in there, you know, this is like 85, I guess. Or so they're just doing like their second record maybe or something. Yeah, they were doing their second or maybe their first. They were mixing their first record. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, after the EP, they were doing Well, the World Survive, and it was 84. Yeah. Okay. And we go in there and I met T-Bone in there. You know, we just had a really goofy conversation. I can't, he was like saying some insane shit. I can't remember what it was. <laughs> Something about Marilyn Monroe and John Wayne and John Lennon and Yoko Ono or something. It was like like a really far out. But how like how did sick. you how did you stumble into a Los Lobos session? Like how does that even happen? Well, they were friends of ours. Oh, okay. They were the um, we played a lot of gigs with the Plimsolls and Los Lobos. Okay. I, I can't remember really. We we played a lot of gigs. You know, I knew Caesar and David. I guess the best. But we played. We they used to play. We play on the road. They used to open for the Plimsolls way back in the really? million years ago. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> so, believe it or not. And uh, so, any old how. So, I, I was writing these songs, and the Plimsolls really weren't going to play them. And I was starting to realize that I was going in a whole other direction. I was going back to what I was doing before I joined the Nerves. Yeah. I was in rock bands for about 11 years, but I, I kind of threw over everything to be a bass player in a rock band. I hadn't really ever been a band player like that in a band, you know, for years. And so I got into learning how to write two minute songs and be in the nerves 1975. And so I was going full circle and coming back into it in 85. Like I was writing, doing kind of what I was doing beforehand was like playing solo and acoustic and playing blues and roots influence music. And, uh, you know, everything was just kind of happening and I knew I needed help and the plimsolls were floundering and we were kind of like past, we'd, we'd taken like a few big shots and, and it wasn't really working. You know, we'd had a big hit, but then uh, when, we had a big hit as an indie and then when we went with Geffen, it was like uh, really mishandled probably and mm. the whole thing exploded and I ended up. As it does. 
Yes, they do. And and as I, I ended up uh, saying to this woman, I, I, I love this woman, Carol Childs over at Gapman, just like a great um, person. And I said, Carol, I need help. I, I want to work with this guy, T-Bone Burnett. It just came to me one night that I thought that was the thing I should do. Okay. So she set it up, you know, and uh, I went out to meet him and I got there like three hours late because I drove in the wrong direction on San Vicente Boulevard. <laughs> There's this one street in LA, and me and my wife have a joke that if you're on San Vicente, you're lost. <laughs> okay. It's like cuts through town at the weirdest angle, and it goes. I can't even figure where it goes, you know. And so I drove instead of driving out to where he lived, I drove out to like you know the other. I wrote. I, went, I got incredibly lost, and I finally I showed up like three hours late to his place. And he goes, "Are you always this late?" I go, "No, I'm not. I'm not." You know. He goes, "Okay, what can I do for you?" And I, and so we ended up, um, I went down to Texas with him. We set up this record and I, uh, I would get up every day in this apartment, and, uh, write songs, playing for him at night when he came back. I don't know what he was doing. He was, he had his own business going on. And, uh, I wrote all that stuff. Like, uh, there's just like songs like small town spree and ice yeah. water. Uh, you know, a lot of the songs were written in that pad. And then, uh, we, we went down to Eagle audio. It's like a studio and he, and we produced demos down to Eagle audio, uh, to make the record. And that's um, in San Antonio. No, it's in Fort Worth. I was there in Fort, Fort Worth for quite a while. And we came back to LA and then we went into uh, Ocean Way and Sunset Sound and finished the record with a great band, you know, including uh, Roger McGuinn, Van Dyke Parks. Awesome. Jerry Marotta on drums, Keltner on drums sometimes. Jackett uh, oh. plays guitar at one point. Uh, uh, Froome came. And then, so we did all that stuff. And then we had to, then the record company got mad at me. What, T-Bone went what, on la- what label were you on at this point? Geffen. Oh, so they signed you as a solo artist too. They signed me as a solo. And then they were excited about it. But then the, when the people higher up heard it, they got somebody, this big, it's a long story, but this big manager, um, I don't even want to go into the story, but there's some yeah. guy like was talking dirt about me. Like the, I was going in the wrong direction, you know? Okay. Uh, and so, <laughs> so, uh, they uh, suspended my uh, record. Um, they suspended us, me and T-Bone and everybody. It was all put on ice. And so the, it was all over. Wow. Uh, in the middle of 85, we were almost had finished the record. And then they, they, fucked, they froze it. T-Bone split. I was just sitting there. Now I'm, now I'm out of, you know, there's no band. I'm playing solo gigs around town, like for 50 bucks. And it was a really weird period. And then months later, I get a phone call. And they go, Peter, we'd like you to come in and take a meeting with... Uh, Tom Zutat. He's the new head of A&R here at uh, Geffen. I go, really? And I go in to meet with Zutat. He'd just come to Geffen. He'd been, he's the guy that like discovered Motley Crue. Okay. And so he was like a superstar. And then he, I think he signed Guns N' Roses, you know, he's like a big guy, you know, and he, he, <laughs> but he goes, uh, Peter, they gave me all the records they're working on right now. When I came over here, they gave me everything they had here at, at uh, Geffen. Somebody else confirmed this for me too. And he says, I didn't, I thought all of it was like completely, you know, a waste of time, except for one record, the record you were working on with T-Bone. Uh, I think it's fantastic. And I want to finish the record. Wow. So, so we went into the studio because of Tom Zutat and we finished the record. Uh, and those are the sessions that, that Mitchell Froome produced? That finished the record. There were just a couple of songs. The ones he produced, he remade one of the songs we did at Eagle Audio, which was um, Steel Strings. Okay. So who was Mitchell Froome at that point? Like, like I, I know of him, of course, for his great production work, but at that time, was he just a keyboard player around town or something? Yeah. And he'd done a little bit of production, but he hadn't even done Crowded House yet. Yeah. He, no. he, was, he was very unknown. I'll tell you a funny story, man. So, 
So I'm like, yeah, I want this guy Mitchell Froome to finish the record because T-Bone's going away. We can finish it with Mitchell. And uh, they're like, oh, I don't know. People. Mitchell Froome? Who's this guy Mitchell? I go, look, trust me. This guy's great. He's going to get He's He knows exactly what he's doing. I can't remember. You know, it's okay. We'll let you work with Mitchell. So we finished the record with Mitchell. Three years later, I'm working on another record over at Geffen. And uh, they go, Peter, we've got someone we really want you to meet. He's a great producer. He's had a number one record recently, and he's interested in working with you. His name's Mitchell Froome. <laughs> You're like, yeah, old news, I, go, man. I introduced you to Mitchell Froome three, <laughs> four years ago. Yeah. So anyhow, so Mitchell came in and finished it. You know, it was an exciting record to make, man. The, first, the most important, exciting part of the record was Van Dyke Parks, who was a hero of mine ever since, like, you know, Nilsson Sings Newman. We were just talking about when I was a kid, you know, he wrote that song, Vine Street, uh, and he's so beautiful on that record, you know, and uh, I love Van Dyke. He, okay. he did that version of it that I knew he didn't write it. Randy wrote it, but he had done a great version of it on Song Cycle. And I loved Van Dyke Park's Song Cycle you when too. I was a kid. Yeah, yeah, you did too. I love yeah, that record. It, yeah, I've I've done some yeah, some playing with Van Dyke, and it's just like I. Anytime that happens, I just I I, I can't believe that I'm looking over at that guy. He's amazing, Jandik Parks. He is. He's, I like Discover America, too. It's pretty good. I, li I like that, too. And Orange Crate Art. So anyhow, the great thing about working with Van Dyke we, was that he wrote the string quartet that we did on Small Town Spree. I think it's like the high point of my recording career, I think, is when I played harmonica solo over the string quartet with nice. Richard Green and people, with Van Dyke conducting, doing Small Town Spree. I, I still think it's one of the... Um, oh, man. Greatest moments. If you want to hear it, it's on my blog at petercase.com. You go to the blog and yeah. and the first thing on the very first blog story is about three different songs. And I think the second or third song has got a link to Small Town Spree. You can listen to it. Too. The story's all written in over there. Oh, cool. But okay. that was super exciting. Working with Van Dyke was great. And, and he did a great job on that. Yeah, he's incredible, man. He, nobody arranges strings like that guy. Yeah, that's right. He's unbelievable. Yeah, I worked with him recently uh, at the Bob Newirth uh, tribute. Oh, really? Oh, cool. Yeah, he was playing piano at that, and that was really fun. Yeah. Him and Mansfield and uh, Fred Tackett and wow. J.D. Doherty. pretty heavy. Yeah. What are another record or two of yours that are, like, throughout – I mean, you've made so many records, but, like, throughout your career, as far as, like, being really memorable for you as the artist that was, like, a special – you know, had special moments or just, like, that you thought was your best artistically, which ones stick out to you as, as those ones? I think the songs are really great on that one called Blue Guitar. And and I did get to play with Rye Kudra on that record. That was really fun. David Dog was on it. and uh, Do you know Rye? Yeah. I haven't seen him for quite a while. He's up down there in Santa Monica, you know. Yeah, I love Rye Kudra, man. He's the greatest. Yeah, his uh, son Joaquin plays drums for me. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, he's great, Joaquin. Uh, my friend, Je do you know Jesse Di Natale? No. Yeah, Rye is the greatest. You know, he's really great, and uh, he was very nice to work with. And uh, I like this record I have called "Full Service No Waiting." Oh, I don't really know that one. I think that maybe it was the best one I did in the '90s. Okay, I got to check that out. It's my favorite, and a lot of people really like it. I know Peter Blackstock from No Depression really liked it. And, like song-wise, it it's your favorite or, or was yeah, it? Just everything about it. Like it came, it was like, you know, you go and make records and uh, you try to get the songs as together as you want. And then you go in and you hope, you know, you hope that it's going to come out in a way that like, you know, they all come out different and you don't really know. But that one, I worked with this fellow named Andrew Williams and we'd set up in a uh, office room 
like an office, like a wooden office room that was like being inside of a guitar or something, this old room over in Hollywood. And he just set up like an ADAT or something in there. And we had a drummer, Sandy Sheila, was playing on suitcases and stuff. Nobody had really done this at that point. We were, were, uh, so it's an acoustic record, but it's got this like lo-fi thing to it. And it doesn't seem like an acoustic record. It seems like an electric record. Cool. Electric acoustic record. And it's got this really interesting vibe to it. Greg Lees plays guitar on it. And there's a song on it called Spell of Wheels. It starts the record. And Greg just did this like really beautiful hypnotic slap steel thing on it and yeah it was just a really fun record to make and we made it all there and andrew's a great producer and he sings with me on it like there's a lot of harmony on there you know just kind of rock and roll harmony and folk harmony and the songs i wrote all in this one i had this room that was like an office with like a portable typewriter in it and i would just go in i had kids at the time and my kids were you know took a lot of my time but i would have like four hours every day i would just go into this room and just go crazy typing lyrics Mm -hmm. trying to write the best you know and I, so I wrote this whole document of like, you know, you know, 50 pages of like single spaced, you know, rhyming lyrics uh, with the music playing in my head. I could hear it in my head while I was doing it. That was the weirdest record. And, and I wrote all the lyrics like that. And, they, and I would just be able to go pick up a guitar and play the song right away. Wow, with those that's so cool. Very, very weird record. So I and the drummer was this kid who never really played in bands or anything. He played for choirs. His name's Sandy Sheila. And he could have been like the number one call in Los Angeles if he would have wanted to do that, but he wanted the front bands himself. And I, I don't know what he's doing right at this moment, but he was a, he's a great drummer. He just has a great impeccable feel. And so it was great. It was, it's a fun record. So that's on Vanguard. I think it's still in print. You can definitely still hear it on Spotify and all those kind of things. I'll check and, that out. Um, it's good to know the yeah, backstory to it. Full service, no waiting. Yeah. That's one yeah. of the best ones. And then, uh, I like the records I've just done recently in a row. I did Highway 62. That's a great record. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I did that. And Ben Harper came down on that one and played a lot of lead guitar on that record. And Don Heffington, no notes of Heffington on that. What made you think of Ben Harper to play guitar on your record? Like that just seems like, uh, I don't know. He just doesn't do that that much. No, he doesn't. You know, but I didn't really ask him to do it. Uh, He showed up. (laughs) Really? (laughs) (laughs) He's the greatest guy in the world, man. He's so nice. And he was just the, so generous. And we were both, he made a record in that same studio and he heard oh. that I was recording and he just came down and offered his services and he showed up for like the whole two weeks. He was there the whole time and, oh. and uh, he just contributed that. And does he you play know, regular like, guitar? Was he playing Weisenborn or what was his, what was the... He was playing a Weisenborn and he also played some electric. Yeah. It was Weisen, a lot of Weisenborn and electric and then just, he was just on hand, you know, for a lot of it. And so... Uh, it was That's really crazy. great. I've done. He's in a movie. They made a movie about me last a couple of years ago. Uh, it's like a documentary or something, and he's in that quite a bit, playing guitar and talking and stuff. Okay. He's great though. I know his mother. Like has a studio out in a a, a store. Yeah. You know about that? It's I do in Claremont. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Claremont Folk Music Center, and so I play there a lot. It's one of my favorite gigs. Okay. And was the Harper family a family that you knew kind of like just being in L.A. And, and, and that store was a bit of a scene and stuff? Is that how you got to know them? The store was definitely a bit of a scene, but I didn't realize that uh, – it took me a while to realize that Ben was part of that scene because he was out on the road all the time. Yeah. So I, I didn't really get to know him then. No, I didn't – it kind of came in sideways. Okay. I, 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 really, you know, because the first time I ever worked with Ben was in uh, the late 90s. I was producing the Mississippi John Hurt tribute record called Avalon Blues. It yeah. ended up being nominated. Love that. Um, Love that album. And I produced that record. And then Ben 
played Sliding Delta on that. Yes, he did. Yeah, a really nice version of it. And so that's the first time I ever uh, talked to him. Oh, okay. So you didn't know him before then? No. Wow. I asked him to do it because I knew – at that point, I did know about the Folk Music Center, and I knew that I had a, I had heard that he really knew a lot about John Hurt, and so we got a hold of him. Okay. And so, I mean, he plays an incredible version of it on that thing. That record was so much fun, and then we got nominated for the – Grammy and all that stuff and went down and it was it really exciting. Yeah, uh, it's it was a, great getting making that record. It was fun. How did that come about? Was that something that somebody approached you about putting together, or was it your idea and you found a home for it, or how? how what was the genesis of it? There's this kid named Kevin Welk, you know, that was coming up through the ranks over at uh, Welk Music. Uh, Welk bought Vanguard, and and I was signed to Vanguard, and so Welk, the Welk family bought it. I'm like, oh my god, this is weird. But then this kid that had been working in the mailroom, Kevin, he starts, he becomes the president of the company. You know, <laughs> I'd known him ever since he started over there. You know, right after he got out of college, he was over there working for Vanguard before they were owned by the Welks. Or maybe right when they bought, I guess they were associated with, they were buying it, you know. Yeah. And then they took over and then they moved to a new location and everything. One day we were down there and I, there's a suitcase laying over there. And I go, if you, but yeah, anything, if you open up that suitcase over there, it's going to be an accordion. <laughs> <laughs> and they open it up and it's like an accordion. It says Welk on it. <laughs> and uh, it was, I was right. And so I used to go out and eat tacos in L.A. with Kevin, you know, for kicks and we went out one day and i'm, I'm going on about, so, so is he is he like lawrence's grandkid or something yeah he's lawrence's his dad well no he's his grandkid yeah okay wow. his dad is larry very well okay crazy so so he's and so uh and larry's lawrence's son and so uh we're out eating tacos and i'm like you guys got the whole Mississippi John Hurt catalog in your uh, vault over there, you know? We should do it. And you guys said, you know, why don't we do a John Hurt tribute? You know, you got, I know I didn't say, why didn't we? I said, well, you guys should do a John Hurt tribute record over there, man. And have some, you know, it was kind of a thing. The guy goes, that's a great idea. You produce it. You're it. That was it. That was it. That was it. And so I did it. It took a long time. It was hard to get everybody to cooperate and all that kind of thing. I did a thing kind of, kind of not too unlike that. And it was like, it was a ton of work. Like I can imagine that, that, uh, you know, that was, what did a, you do? I did a tribute to the Mississippi Sheiks. Mm. Hey, I'd like to hear that. I, I'll send you a copy. Will you send me a copy of that? I'm a big fan of the Mississippi Sheiks. Wow. Who played on that one? Uh, John Hammond's on it. Van Dyke Parks did a really crazy arrangement on it. Um, what song did he do? He did Bootlegger's Blues. Wow, that sounds like a great record. I, I got to get a copy of that. North Mississippi That's All cool. Stars are on it, and um, oh wow, Bruce Colburn. I think Bruce oh, Colburn's wow. on your thing too, right? Oh, he is. He's yeah. great. I love Bruce Colburn. Yeah. Anyway, like the that one that I did, it was like an epic amount of work, and so yeah, I can imagine. I I, I know what you must have gone through to put that all together. Yeah, you probably know exactly what I went through. <laughs> but the worst thing that I went through was uh, I was trying to get a whole, I was trying to get Taj Mahal to be on it because I knew how much he loved John Hurt. He was like his bodyguard and guide back in like you know '67. Yeah. So and I had these old pictures, and I really wanted to get Taj on there. And so I called. I didn't know how to get a hold of Taj. So I'd met him before, but I didn't know how to get a hold of him. So I somebody told me who he was managed by Bill Graham Management. So I call over there, man, and uh, I get this guy. Oh, yeah, this is very interesting. Tell me about the project. Tell me about the whole project. I go, well, this, that, and, you know, it's for Vanguard. The money's going to go to this, and then we're going to donate, you know, this, and then da 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 And who's going to be on it? da 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 Might go through this whole rap, you know, he goes, very interesting. I, okay, this sounds really great. I think there's something Taju, you know, um, 
I'll get back to you about this. I don't hear anything. <laughs> I don't hear anything for like weeks, months, months. And I'm doing the whole rest of the record. Now it's been a year and I've called the guy like several times and he's never returning my call. And then finally I get through to him over there after about 10 phone calls to the switchboard. This, he finally takes my call. I'm like, please, we're trying to rep, you know, please take my call. And he takes my call. He goes, so tell me about this project. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and I'm trying to remember I ran into somebody else. I'm trying to remember who it was. It wasn't Van Dyke. It was somebody. And he goes, uh, God, God, I'm spacing out right now. It was somebody on the folk music scene. And they go, they go, don't call that guy. Like, just call this number here. This is, uh, I think it was the Larmans from the folk scene people. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, just call this guy. He's Taj's road manager. Right, right. So I call that guy. And he's like, no problem. And, he, and so uh, he gives me another number. And I call it up. And it's Taj, you know. Yeah. Taj goes, of course, man. Yeah. You know, he starts telling me all these stories about Mississippi. <laughs> and like they set it all up and then we had it. But it took like a year's worth of phone calls and all this other nonsense, you know. Persistence, but, uh, man. Good for you. Yeah. So that was tough, you know. Yeah. Gillian, Gillian Welch is on there. and uh, Yeah. It's a great you know, record. A lot of people. A lot of people I knew played John Hurt stuff. You know, when I met Bill Morrissey, we met in a hotel room in West Virginia and we just sat, we had a night off. And we just sat all night playing John Hurt songs oh, wow, in this cool. hotel. Yeah. You know, so I knew he knew a lot of them. And uh, what about Steve Earle, you know, I'd worked with him and uh, uh, we'd both sat around and done the same thing at one point. So he, I think he's on there. I can't remember all who's on yeah. there. I knew Hyatt knew about it. So I got a lot of different, it was mostly people I knew. I don't know if that record's in print anymore. Is yours still in print? Uh, not real. Sort of. There's there's copies kicking around out there. Who did that one? The Mississippi Sheiks one. We put it out independently. Oh, that's good. I don't even have the John Hurt record. I don't even know if uh, I might have I one do. copy. Somewhere. I got one. You do? Yeah. Never came out on vinyl. I wish they'd put it out on vinyl. I know they should now. Yeah. And Beck's on there too, right? Yeah. That was another one that was like a long. Uh, I bet layers of managers. Yeah, that might have even been worse than, Tom, yeah. <laughs> than the other one. But it came in. Yeah, you know, came through by the end. You know. So what's happening for you now? Like, are you going to tour this record and like do a piano tour, or or is it just business as usual for you? Or what's like what's going to be the thing that you do when when the record comes out? Well, Steve, I think it's going to be business slightly unusual, but not completely unusual. Okay. And so I'm gonna I'm, I am gonna carry a keyboard. You are. That sounds. Great. A Yamaha, and it sounds really good. But uh, a lot of places have, about half the places have good pianos. You remember every every bar in the world used to have a piano like 20 years ago. You remember that? And they all unloaded them, man. Where did they all go? Like even bars, you know, every nightclub, any any place that every recording studio, they all had pianos. Now they don't. Yeah. And so about half of them have pianos. So I'm going to carry a piano. I'm still going to play guitar at the shows. I'm going to play piano too. Uh, you know, I'm not crazy about it. It's like a module piano, you know. Yeah. It doesn't look that great, but, you know, I don't know. <laughs> totally. I, mean, I know what you mean. It work, you know, it's not as cool as upright, but I don't know what to do about that. Uh, we'll just see how that all goes. I'm starting to have a slightly different feeling about touring and everything. Like, I just used to be like a road dog, and I would, I've, I've, been, yeah. I've done so many, many gigs on the road. And then being home was very interesting over this pandemic because – this was the only record I've ever been able to write, learn how to play, and then record on one, you know, shot. Without splitting. Without splitting. Yeah. I think it adds a lot to the focus and the, the, the heart of the record. Oh, cool. I think you can, there's kind of more of a kind of piece at the heart of this one. Yeah. 
it's not maybe not in a focus, you know, that that I can hear it. I, you know, I don't know if other people can, but you know, I was always on the road, and it's always interrupts your life. And I'm, I'm thinking now, you know, I'm also into other things. I'm I'm writing a book, and I'm also you know I do like visual art and stuff, and so I'm, I'm mm-hmm. kind of uh, not that I'm that good at that, but uh, I'm not trying to market myself as a painter or anything. But I like just being able to work on things. You know, people don't realize like when you're a touring musician, like your whole job really. Like Cherry Jeff Walker, I did a gig with him one time and he goes, the job, you know, you travel for a living and you play music at night to relax. <laughs> totally. That's totally it, man. You know, you travel for a living. Every day you're out there traveling and it's yeah. just so time consuming. Yeah, you know, it can you, be a total nightmare. You know, I've seen the, you know, the country over and over and over again. And I, I do enjoy traveling in America and meeting everybody and stuff. But um, it taught, the pandemic taught me the shutdown taught me, the pandemic didn't really teach me anything, but the shutdown did teach me how valuable time is and how much of it is in a day mm-hmm. that you can do so many different things. And touring is fantastic. And you, you get to go every night and do something creative in front of for people. And it's very beautiful. And I love doing that, but I, I'm not sure I'm going to do it to the same degree. Like I'm kind of thinking I'm just going to maybe – Check, do the best shots. Be a little more selective. Maybe, you know, instead yeah. of just like beating the bushes and playing like, you know, because I've just played every kind of gig. And like, I feel like at this point, maybe uh, that's that's in the cards. Yeah, well, that's cool. I'm 69 years old in about another month, in about two weeks. Right on. That's a good age. To- I don't feel 69, but uh, after I go on the road for, uh, you know, 10,000 miles, like even <laughs> when I was 30, I thought I was 69. So I was like... <laughs> <laughs> totally. I remember Dave Alvin on the road, he'd be coming out of a van like, really feeling this one, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> that was a long time ago. You know? It's tough. Yeah. I love playing on the road, but, you know, I really do. I love performing. And it make, you get really good when you perform every night. But there's, you know, I have to look at it. You know, it's, you know, it's not like I have like a huge support network on the road. So usually I go right. with one person. Thing and it's you know it's difficult so i don't know it's it's very time consuming like bob dylan's on his bus you know and he's got all these people and he's staying at you know five-star hotels and they roll up you know amps and pianos to his room and everything like that yeah and, it's a little different you know, but you know and he knows people you know the royalty of the world you know yeah. but you know and i don't mind the p i love the people i see on the road and i see my friends on the road and i have a great time but it's just so so intense you know and i'm not it's not like a 69 i'm gonna have like a bust out hit you know that's gonna uh, he's gotta go on the road you never know, get up. You, know it's like, <laughs> you know it might be a popular record but it's not gonna be like uh you know it happens when you're 30 you know or yeah, 25 yeah. a lot of my favorite music is people playing solo i love the john hurt solo records i love Me monk too. solo with the monk solo records i love the band records too i love it all but there really is something to that solo voice once you get into it, you know, the troubadour thing is uh, very appealing, you know, mm-hmm. it gets, it grows on you for sure. <laughs> but when I was a kid, I had Bob, the first Bob Dylan record. I thought it was like the greatest rock and roll record I'd ever heard. And it's just completely solo. It's like Sun Sessions or something. That first record, he just wailing with it his is. voice. It's and, punk rock, man. Oh, it's good. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's really good. I mean, I'm kind of in this club too, but like, you know, I'm into free jazz. Like when I was a kid, I was into uh, Cecil Taylor. Yep. At the same time, I was into Mississippi John Hurt. Sure. I had the record called Conquistador by Miss, by uh, Cecil Taylor. And uh, I loved it. I used to play it. Only two tracks on the record, one on each side of the album. It, just, yeah. like, it was wild. And 
swaves of piano and saxophones and just yeah. a great record. And Kelly Joe uh, would say that Mississippi, we were talking about time and he was talking about how Mississippi uh, from McDowell's time was like cyclical, circular time and that it would go up and then down. We were talking, we, so we had this long conversation about timing and, and about how it's similar to the um, free jazz people. So he, he says that, it, you know, he's a pretty far out guy. You know, he, he talked yeah. about how, listen, he was into he was into like the Portland free jazz scene. Uh, you know, he's, is, a, he's an amazing bass player. Yeah, yeah, he was into that whole scene, and then he began to listen to Fred McDowell and those guys, and and uh, the other guy, uh, Pete Williams, yeah. Pete um, Robert Pete Williams, Robert Pete Williams. He was listening to that as it in the same kind of head that you would listen to a free jazz record in. Yeah, and we talked about that, and you know, it was pretty interesting, obvious in his playing. I mean, I thought he was great, you know. Yeah, we toured, like I was in his band. Like when he stopped playing Slide, he got me to play Slide for him, which was terrifying and it's kind of a huh? kind of a terrible gig to have because like I loved, his, I loved his Slide playing and I wanted I also wanted to hear him play Slide, but he didn't want to do it anymore. He didn't want to do it anymore. You know, why was that? He's, he felt like he got hamstrung by it. He did. And basically with him, it was like any anytime anyone – said they wanted him to do something he just wanted to do the opposite <laughs> so the more people the more people harassed him about like playing slide the more he was just like no way man that's a sideshow like i'm not into it and he just like well, stuck was, he stuck to his guns good. with that but then he started playing slide again but bottleneck bottleneck what do you mean bottleneck like upper like he wasn't playing lap with the guitar up not in a lap but up you start playing bottleneck yeah wow so the I last... hadn't seen him for years. The last time I saw him was in Boulder. We were doing E-Town together. Oh, yeah. And I, I think I did Mountain Stage with him one time, too. But we hung out at E-Town. Yeah. We did some music together at that and talked a lot. Yeah. I don't really know what happened to him. I know he went to Canada. I hadn't seen him for years. Wow. Well, uh, great talking great to you, man. Talking to you. I hope they're running to in, in one of these places in the world. Yeah, maybe we'll see you at a festival or something. That'd be cool. Yep. You going out on the road and playing? Uh, a little bit, yeah. I'm I'm doing some Canadian dates in uh, April and May, and then a few festivals and stuff over the summer. Hey, what, what, are you playing solo or with a group? Uh, I'm playing with my band. Like, yeah, I've I've got a three piece band. So, drummer, bass player, keyboard player. This goes under your name. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll see you out there, man. All right, man. All right. Good talking to you. You too. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening, everybody. Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast is produced at the Hen House Studio in East Nashville, Tennessee. Please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can find more info on this episode, including show notes and an audio playlist for Spotify and Apple Music at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Thank you again to our sponsors this season, Union Tube and Transistor, Spectra in 1964, The Deering Banjo Company, Mule Resonator Guitar, Guitars and the henhouse hang. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Over and out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.